I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily, selected as Best of 2018 by Apple. Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Juan Loiza has been working on the Oracle database since 1988. Today, he is the Executive Vice President of System Technology and is responsible for developing the mission's critical capabilities of Oracle Database. Throughout the years, Juan has seen a lot of change in the tech world, and it's that pace of innovation that keeps him on his toes and excited about all the work he is doing with Oracle. In this episode, Ian and Juan discuss how database technology has evolved, as well as the many new and emerging technologies, such as autonomous databases, AI, and machine learning that are central to his role as an IT leader. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at The Mission. I'm joined by a special guest in studio. Juan, how's it going? Doing great. Happy to be here. Happy to have you here. It's always good when we have uh, MIT guys and gals in, in studio because we got somebody uh, way smarter than all of us here. But it's exciting to have you here. You've been at Oracle for a long time. You have tons of lessons. And I'm really excited to share a lot of this uh, stuff with our audience. All right. Okay, so first off, you hold a number of patents, is that correct? Uh, yeah, so I've been uh, working in, in this field for several decades, and a lot of innovation has happened in that time, yes. And did you go straight from MIT directly into Oracle? Like, how did that, how did that happen? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I've been at Oracle since 1988. I was at MIT as an undergraduate, then in the master's program. I was actually in the PhD program there also when I decided, hey, I want to build real world systems, something that really matters to the world that makes a difference. Uh, and I came to Oracle, which was very lucky for me because as we could see, Oracle has been one of the very few companies that has been successful over the last three, four decades. Only really a handful or less of companies have really survived and thrived over that time. Especially through, you know, the tech.com boom and bust and all those things. And obviously you have the recession, everything, and you all stayed, stayed in a position of innovation. And today we want to talk about databases. And specifically, we're going to get into autonomous database and transition to the cloud. But first, what were the things that you saw early on at Oracle that were exciting about databases and this opportunity? Yeah, so for me, I like building complex systems that are important for the real world. And so database is exactly the kind of thing that I like because it it really runs the world. So it, you use probably the Oracle database 100 times a day or more without even knowing about it. So every time you use your phone, your credit card, you buy something at a store, you get your paycheck, you have some interaction with the government, you know, 100 times a day, even, you know, things like products that we use, the manufacturing of those is all tracked in an Oracle database. Quality is all tracked, the drugs you take, the trials, the distribution, everything, shipping, airlines, it's all based on databases. So databases are super core to modern day's economy. And there's a huge number of challenges in databases to run all these different applications and run them extremely well and do all sorts of different operations on the data. So data is becoming more and more core to the world. And so it's, it's a huge challenge. It's a huge opportunity. There's a lot of interesting stuff to do. So that's why uh, I decided to come work at Oracle. Oracle at that time was, you know, getting, it, was, it already existed for 10 years, but it, it was growing very rapidly. 
and it was clear it was going to be a very successful company and a place that had a, a lot of dynamism. So that's what it really attracted me to Oracle. And as you kind of saw this problem emerging and, and being solved in the marketplace, what were some of the changes that you've seen since 1988? I mean, obviously, technologically, we've had, we'd have a ton, but what is like the market demanded of databases? How has that changed with obviously the rise of like autonomous and all that? We can get into it. But just from a market standpoint, like what were the like problem sets then and now? Or are they kind of similar? So there's always changes. You know, in the technology world, nothing stays the same for very long. So every, you know, every year, every couple of years, there's more changes. So there's more demands on data. There's more things you can do with data. There's more ways people can structure the data. There's demands on getting the security, much better security, much better availability, management, diagnostics, the whole operational aspects of databases, how people use them, how fast they can be, how you scale them, how you use all the latest uh, hardware technologies, software technologies. For example, Oracle started, when I started Oracle, the biggest platform that Oracle ran on was VaxVMS. And VaxVMS doesn't even exist anymore. It's so crazy. we get a lot of very rapid changes, you know, multi-core chips, the whole, you know, flash memory. Nowadays, a big thing that's coming up is non-volatile memory, machine learning, AI, all these things are constantly changing. So technology is constantly changing. And one of the things you have to do, of course, is you have to adapt, not just adapt, but embrace the change and become a leader in the change. And that's really the, the, the key to surviving over decades. You have to figure out what's real. Because the other thing that one of, I think the subtle things that a lot of people don't realize is you can look back in time and say, oh, that was a big change. And of course you had to adapt to that. But at any given time, there's probably four false revolutions that yeah. are happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for example, right now, is blockchain a real revolution or really a kind of a small thing, right? It's very difficult to tell these things ahead of time. Yeah. Um, you know, that's funny about about blockchain. We had Amber Balde on who is working with companies, B2B companies with blockchain. And one of the things that we've learned from a lot of the CIOs is this idea of like taking bets versus when do you just kind of hold your chips, right? It's like, when is the right time to invest in the trend? Like you don't want to be too early. You don't want to be too late. You want to kind of time it right, kind of similar to venture capital actually. And this idea of like, is now the time for blockchain B2B or is it you know, going to be in a year or was it two years ago or, or whatever it is? What are some of those kind of bets that you've seen Oracle make over the years that have really resulted in developing products that your, you know, your customers needed? Yeah, so there's been a lot of things like that. I mean, I, I give you another example of kind of a, a false revolution you know, within a year of my joining Oracle in the 80s, every news article was about neural nets and how they were going to take over the world. And that was in the 80s. Yeah. Now, you know, neural nets are actually coming back. And actually now the, the hardware technology is advanced where it looks interesting. But, you know, 30 years ago, it wasn't going to happen. There yeah. was nowhere near enough technology. But uh, a very big bet that Oracle made early on was to be independent of the hardware and the operating system and the hardware vendor in general. So that was a big bet for us. It was very unusual at the time. Most most systems were, for example, IBM ran on IBM computers. There were databases that ran on, you know, DEC. There were databases that ran on this and that. And Oracle was a portable platform across all those. So that was very big. We bet on both very big symmetric multiprocessors scale up. We also put a big bet very early on on scale out. 
So we wanted to be able to both scale up and scale out. Those are very hard technical problems to solve. So for example, one of the very first platforms that Oracle ran on was the N-Cube computer. It was a massively parallel computer 30 years ago. Now, in fact, you know that didn't take off at the time, but that the basis of that technology we use today and is in widespread use around the world because scale out eventually did take off. So those are those are examples. Another big one that was to me kind of obvious, for example, flash technology. That was a big deal in storage. So we bet very early on when we first saw flash coming, we said we got to get on top of that, and we got to be first to market with anything good with flash technology. Another one recently is in-memory databases. So that's another big transition in the database technology. And of course, cloud computing and also um, autonomous database, which is something that we're currently very betting very big on. So I would say every two, three years, there's an opportunity to mess up yeah, <laughs> or an opportunity to thrive even more. Yeah. When I was, when I was at school, when I went to West Point, our teachers used to say every test was another opportunity to excel, right? It's like, it's also another opportunity to do something else, but definitely an opportunity to excel. So I, and I want to want to hone in on the autonomous database. What is autonomous database and why is this important for like IT leaders right now? Uh, sure. So let's talk about that. So first of all, what we're talking about here is enterprise database, the databases that run phone companies, banks, you know, huge governments. These are very complex products. So the analogy I sometimes draw is to say it's kind of like an airplane. It's a very complex part. It has a ton of moving parts. To develop a real successful, you know, enterprise scale database requires tens of thousands of engineers, maybe 100,000 engineers to be really a successful product that works well, that can run the world's businesses. A lot of complexity. So databases really, I think, are... I don't know if it's the most complex product ever on the market, but it's among the most. Let's put it that way. There's a handful that might contend with it. For example, operating systems, also extremely complex. It takes thousands and thousands of engineers, tens of thousands of engineers to develop a successful operating system. And so these are extraordinarily complex products. And what we've been doing over the years is we've been taking piece by piece and trying to automate it to make it simpler, to make it self-managing, to make it self-securing, to make it self-scaling. So we've been working toward this kind of in a hundred different ways for years. And what's happened recently is we're kind of reaching a point now where we're able to go beyond automating piece parts. So for example, if you had a car, let's say, we're gonna automate the, the transmission. So we have an automatic transmission. We're gonna automate the direction finding. We're gonna automate the brakes. So we have anti-like brakes. So we automate piece by piece by piece. And eventually you get close enough, you say, okay, we're now going for the prize, the fully autonomous, fully self-managing database that handles all the different challenges uh, for very large businesses at scale. So things like creating a new database, but also things like securing, making sure it's completely secure. All the different aspects of management, not just at the database level, but everything underneath, the hardware, the software, the OS, the firmware, the networking, all that has to be completely automated. The availability. So, what happens when any kind of failure happens from anything, you know, some little failure in some component to, you know, earthquake, something like that that takes out an entire region of the world? You know, your credit cards have to keep functioning, your airplanes have to stay in the air, the power plants have to keep going. There's things like scaling. So, how do you start small? How do you grow big? How do you get back small again, both in, in capacity and in performance and memory and CPU power? And then finally, tuning. So databases are very complex and there's all sorts of different workloads that happen in a database. So all that has to be automated. So figure out what the workload is, adapt to it, 
in a real-time fashion uh, and do that both for the two biggest parts of the database, which are really OLTP, which is transaction processing, like, hey, I'm buying something with a credit card, but also the other part of it's analytics, which is, you know, tell me what happened in my business last week and how it compares to a year ago and what are the trends. So all that very complex processing, we're trying to automate it all, make it much, much simpler. So it's kind of like a self-driving car is what we're building here. It's like, hey, this stuff is complicated. Let's just make it all automated. Yeah, it's a great analogy. And it's it's really interesting also to just walk it through the the car analogy that how we automated each of these individual steps. And then now finally we have a fully automated vehicle. What were some of the biggest requirements from your customers from this standpoint? I mean, like what do people, whether it's governments or these gigantic companies or, you know, phone companies, what was the impetus for needing this? Or is this kind of like a, a tech-driven change or like a, like a change driven by you all? Or was this like, like, we know that all of these people are going to need this in the future. We need to start building it now. And that now was, you know, whatever, 10 years ago. Or was it kind of like you hear feedback from your customers constantly about X, Y, or Z? Like, like to use the car analogy, Nobody ever like woke up and was like, hey, I want it or I want anti-lock brakes. It was like, whoa, this new thing called anti-lock brakes. This is great because manual brakes are awful. Um, like kind of which which was it or was it a bit of both? Yeah, I would say it's a bit of both. So let me talk about kind of both parts. So for example, cost. Everybody wants lower costs, yeah. right? And labor is really, skilled labor is really hard to get. So if you go talk to heads of IT, they'd say, really good skilled labor, very scarce. If you can reduce my reliance on it, if, you can, if I can move them to more of a business function away from kind of maintenance, then that's a huge benefit to me. It reduces my costs and frees me up to do more innovation. Absolutely. Uh, so that's one part of it, which is kind of, you know, it's been out there, but there's kind of a couple of newer things. So for example, security is a big thing. So the way tradi- uh, security has traditionally been done is, hey, there's, exploits that are found, you know, continuously. And as someone that runs an IT system, I have to basically do whatever it takes to make sure I'm secure against these things. And the trouble that we're having now is that the level of threat, it just keeps ratcheting up. So in the old days, first of all, systems weren't really visible on the internet. It was all kind of back, you know, mostly backend systems. So the level of threat was lower because of that. But the other thing that used to happen is we were really primarily worried about the the random hacker out there that would find some random bug. And at some level, that was more manageable. Uh, nowadays, the threat level has gone through the roof because we have very large and organized criminal gangs. And also, it's really nation states attacking companies now. Yeah. So that's a completely different thing. I can't remember that happening you know, five years ago or 10 years ago. There was no report of whatever, let's say North Korea, you know, breaking into Sony and trying to destroy the company. Yep. That didn't happen. It never happened before. But that's the thing that people are worried about now. So if, I, if I'm if i a corporate leader, I'm not, you know, the random hacker out there, maybe I can deal with that. But if I have an organized nation state attacking me, you know, the threat level, the sophistication that you need has gone way up. And a lot of the manual processes don't work anymore. You have to react faster and it has to be much more secure. So you really need someone else backing you up, right? You need a company with scale, with tens of thousands of engineers like Oracle to say, I can't fight, let's say, as an example, North Korea by myself. I'm going to need 
you know, 10,000 other engineers on my side helping me protect and, and having the whole thing automated and standardized uh, so that I can protect myself from that kind, of, that kind of threat. And of course, things like availability, you know, everyone just assumes everything works now, right? So yeah. they use their credit card, they get on their flight, they, you know, turn on the light switch. There's no tolerance for any kind of, hey, this thing is glitching or whatever. You show up to the grocery store, you want to just check out instantaneously. And people kind of flip out now if any little thing happens. Also, there's no more tolerance for data loss. So, I mean, in the old days, people, you know, every once in a while, it's like, oh, something happened. We restored a backup. It's like, doesn't work anymore. And it never really worked for things like financial records. Yeah. I mean, and, the, and a lot of those threats are a mix of decentralized and centralized threats. So it's like you, and it's all the time, right? It's 24-7. They're constantly trying to penetrate your networks in some way and testing your networks in some way. So have you seen this kind of, you know, we talk about the role of the IT leader as sometimes it's a CIO, sometimes it's a CTO, sometimes, you know, you wear joint hats with the CISO. What are you seeing of the folks that you're working with as this blended security threat saying, hey, this isn't just an IT problem or this is an IT problem. Security is an IT problem. We need to be able to have capacity for for this. Like, is there kind of like a a change in that CIO or that IT leader that you've seen over time? Yeah, I mean, the big change is, you know, people are seeing what's happening, what's happened several times to very large corporations, even companies uh, like Equifax, that was really a financial yeah. company that, you know, a very sophisticated financial company. So people are scared and they're saying, hey, I can't do this by myself anymore. So that's become, and not just at the CIO level, this is a CEO level. Absolutely. Uh, so security... Again, it used to be more of a CIO, there's a hacker or whatever. Nowadays, it, it's a potentially company-ending threat. Uh, and it will definitely get you on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And even if you're the CEO of a company, you could easily be fired over some breach. And by the way, if you're fired for a data breach, you'll probably never get another job as a CEO ever again. So it, it literally is a career-ending event. So people are a lot more worried about it and they realize, I can't do this by myself. So, so they need autonomy. They need to partner with large companies that have these capabilities. And it all needs to be much more, like I mentioned before, it was, it was kind of very manual before. I mean, analogy might be, hey, you know, you run around your house, you make sure your windows are locked, you, you do that stuff. You know, it's kind of okay when you're worried about some local, you know, opportunistic thief. If you have a nation state attacking your house, that doesn't work anymore. You need kind of an army around your house and you need everything to be checked and secured. There can't be any holes in your security because they're going to break in. It's not some random guy trying to you know, steal some jewelry and run away. So yeah, so that, that whole thing has changed. Availability's changed, uh, scaling, the move to the cloud. So there's been a lot of, of uh, reasons why this autonomous technology, you know, some of it is, as you mentioned, kind of it's just been around for a long time. Hey, lower my costs, get more skills. But some of it, the, the, the environment's changing and what we were doing in the past isn't going to work in the future. I I forget who who said this, but somebody, and it's really kind of a dumb quote, but uh, it's not dumb, but it's, it's just a silly quote of like data is the new oil, right? But I, I think that the other, the, the true part of this is that data is the fuel for machine learning, for AI, for all of the processes and all of the seamless transactions that you were talking about earlier, all of the little things that were inconvenienced by data is the thing that is that is fueling this. How important is data going to be 
as we go forward? Obviously, we know like very important, but what are the downsides of getting it wrong? Yeah, so data, you know, has been increasing in importance for many, many decades, you know, and, and it's only gonna it's only gonna get more important. We all know that. More and more of what we do is online. More and more of what we do is around data. There's you know, a lot of the physical aspects of things have become much more automated. And so and also data in terms of competition, if you're a company, data is unbelievably important in terms of competition because it's how you stay ahead, how you stay in the business. If someone else can use their data more effectively than you can to provide a better service, to predict, you know, to provide better offers to customers, to provide a better product to customers, then they're going to win and you're going to lose. Your whole company can can go out of business because unless you have a very effective data strategy. So yeah, it's 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 incredibly important. There's no end in sight to this, right? It's only going to get more and more important. What is exadata? How and how is this how is this important for IT leaders? Yeah, so I mentioned there's been a lot of transitions that's happened that have happened in the industry. And one of the transitions that we really led starting about 10 to 15 years ago was a transition to engineering the complete stack around database. So I mentioned when Oracle first started, it was a pure software company. Yeah. And our strategy was we will run on any successful platform on the market. Yep. And that allowed us to thrive. So as I mentioned, you know, Vax VMS was the number one platform. Well, Unix became very popular. And so there were various Unix vendors that came. And then, you know, some other bigger Unix vendors came around. And then Linux came around. Windows came around, became successful in the enterprise. So we were we were able to survive and thrive because we were able to evolve across any platform. So a big change that uh, we saw 10, 15 years ago was the generic platforms for databases were running out of steam. There was a whole bunch of bottlenecks in that architecture. So when you strictly layer, when you say, hey, I'm going to buy a server from vendor X, I'll buy the storage from vendor Y, I'll buy the, the network from vendor Z, the OS from here, the backup from that, the database from this guy, that kind of traditional best of breed and, and build it yourself strategy, which was what the industry thrived on, was reaching its limits. So part of it was the complexity of doing that yourself, but a lot of it was that layered architecture didn't work anymore. So... For example, CPUs became a lot faster. So we got multi-core CPUs. Today we have 32-core CPUs. Mm -hmm. But the network didn't keep up. And separating the storage from the CPUs became a big bottleneck. So you have your data in one place, which is storage, and you have your computer someplace else. And what happened is you can't get the data out of the, out of the storage fast enough to keep the CPUs busy. So one of the things we did with when we looked at all this stuff, we said, hey, we got to change the architecture. Uh, we have to move database processing into all the layers of the infrastructure. So we need database processing, not just in the computers, but we have to put it directly in the storage and put database intelligence in the networking and in the, and in the actual components of the storage. So that was a big change that we saw coming. And we developed a new product called Exadata, which was a hardware software platform, a completely integrated hardware software platform, where we completely re-architected the whole stack based on database and, and broke all the different layering that, that the industry traditionally had, had evolved and created this product called Exadata, which has now become extraordinarily successful. So what we were able to offer customers was an order of magnitude better performance and cost 
much better availability, much better security, and much easier to use product. That uh, we started shipping about 10 years ago. Today, it's in use by four out of the five biggest banks, telecoms, and retailers in the world. It runs, you, you use it probably 50 times a day without even knowing it. And that has directly led into our cloud strategy also, because when we move in the cloud, again, you want a very optimized platform. So we're able to use that same scale out, highly optimized platform in our cloud to be able to run much more effectively. You know, you've, you've talked about some of these really high profile customers. What does it take to win in like a zero defect world, right? A, a world where mistakes that are made are potentially disastrous, like we were talking about with, with some of the security stuff. What does it take to create a product that is like, and how do you lead a team in kind of that way that, you know, these 10,000, these thousands and thousands and thousands of engineers, how do you create like a culture around, you know, zero defect? Like we need to be perfect for the customer. Cause I think that that's pretty hard, right? Like that, like a lot of this stuff is actually life or death or potentially life or death situations. How do you do that? Yeah. I, I don't want to claim we're zero defect, first of all, because well, I don't yeah. think there's anything, but yeah. So, so it really boils down to paying attention to the details and the architecture and thinking it through. I mean, that's really, you know, one of the reasons why Oracle survived and some of our earlier competitors didn't is their product kind of had all sorts of problems, right? So yeah. it, would, it would lose data, corrupt data. We were always took those issues very seriously and it was architected from the beginning. So from the beginning of the core of the Oracle database, we said, we can't lose people's data. And there's a lot of very subtle corner cases, especially as you scale and with all sorts of failures that you have to deal with. So that becomes part of the culture and part of what we build on. And you have to hire very good engineers. You have to pay attention to all the details. And the other thing, you have to support your customers. Issues do come up. You have to basically work through the issues. And as far as being successful in these companies, you build up a reputation as someone that they can rely on. So when a company is like, let's say you're a phone company and you're, you're saying, hey, where am I going to do with my phone activation system, my phone billing system, my phone routing system, my new customer activation system? Those are all things that your company is dead without. So you really have to develop a reputation, develop an excellent product, because the engineers that work on these things in these, for example, telephone companies, this is what they do. They understand this technology. So you can't fake it. Yeah. You can't just go in and say, oh yeah, this is good or whatever. Uh, they try these things, they try everything on the market. And a lot of it boils down to just executing. You have to design, you have to execute, you have to work with your customers, you have to support your customers. There's nothing kind of conceptually difficult, but it is very difficult to execute year after year after year. Many of our competitors, every competitor that we had when I first joined Oracle has basically killed itself in the market. One of the interesting things I say is we didn't actually beat anybody. What we did is we didn't mess up. Yeah. <laughs> and one by one, they messed up and they basically killed themselves. You know, and it's and it brings me to this kind of interesting thing which is happening now where there's like new entrants to the market and some of these, you know, which I affectionately call cloud wars. There's this kind of interesting campaign that you all have rolled out about, you know, like we can now beat the pricing of competitors by, you know, half. This idea of like we're providing a superior solution at a significantly lower cost. How is that type of, you talked about economies of scale earlier with the amount of engineers and the talent that you have on the team. Does that play into this ability to offer a product that is not only better, but cheaper? I mean, it, I mean that's kind of what 
what the positioning of the company has been. I, I just think it's a fascinating way of looking at it. And when you talk about the ability for Oracle to endure, it kind of feels like that. It's like we've done all of this work for so many years to get to this point where it's like, hey, the results potentially speak for themselves. Yeah. So in the software world, and particularly the enterprise space, what really matters is how much throughput you can get. So on on a on like a handheld device or a personal device, you kind of want fast interaction. Yeah. When you're talking about the enterprise space, you're talking about thousands, millions of like how many people use a phone every day? Yeah. Probably eighty percent of the world or something. So billions of people. Yeah, it's probably like five billion people or something, six um, billion people or something. So it's all about how much throughput you can get, how many, how many different requests you can process, how efficiently can you do that? And so this is something that we've been working on since the beginning of Oracle, which is how do you scale it at low cost? How do you make your algorithms more and more efficiently? How do you use, for example, machine learning to automatically tune the algorithms based on the workload? So as the work, different workloads require different tuning. And so because we've kind of mastered that technology of being able to scale and tune and have very high performance algorithms in the core, we're able to run much more efficiently so it's kind of like a car that gets 300 miles per gallon. Yeah. And so if you have a car that gets 300 miles per gallon, it actually costs less. Even though the car is more sophisticated, for an end user, it actually costs them less money to operate it, to own and operate it. So technology can enable all sorts of advantages in availability and security, but also in cost. I mean, I think that that's one of the things we always hear about disruption and all these you know, technologies being disrupted and all of that. But I think that sometimes people forget that there's value in time. I, I forget who said this, but somebody, and I'm yeah, paraphrasing this, but the amount of time that it takes to build a company is roughly the time that it will take for that company to die. A lot of times you just don't know where like the middle point is. Like you don't know where they're cresting or, or dying, that sort of thing. And I think that people with, especially with companies that have been built so quickly, you know, and and have these rapid rise, sometimes you have a rapid fall. And I think this idea of, you know, building technology that there just haven't been that many technologies that have been around for, you know, like 50 years, for example. I mean, like Apple just turned 40 a couple of years ago. I think it's a really interesting thing to this idea of like, yeah, all of that information that we have now we can leverage machine learning and AI and all these sort of things to fine tune what we've been doing and still create disruptive technologies. What are some of those things like those machine learning or AI what are you seeing from your vantage point that are kind of some of the breakthroughs there that are going to influence the next 10 years? Yeah, so there's a number of, like I said, at any given time, there's always big technological change. That's one of the interesting and exciting things about being in this field. So right now, a very big transition that's going on is cloud. Another one is in-memory technologies. And yet another one is what you mentioned, which is machine learning and AI. So... We, I break machine learning and AI into kind of two different parts. There's what we use ourselves internally to make the system better, make yeah. our own database better. So have our database self-tune itself, self-diagnose itself, self-optimize itself. So these are algorithms we use internally. And the outside, you don't see any of that. All yeah. you just see is, hey, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's easier. So that's one aspect of, of machine learning that we use internally. The second aspect is, the machine learning technology we provide the customers 
to improve their business. So for example, over the last 10 years, we've built a lot of machine learning algorithms directly into our database that the customers can call directly. So you already have the data in the database, right? And you say, all right, here's my retail data. Now, part of what machine learning does, you know, a lot of the real use cases are really predicting the future. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, databases have kind of an online thing. It's like, hey, I enter, a customer enters a new order. That's what we call online transaction processing. Then there's analytics, which is, hey, how many orders did I get today? How does it compare to last year? What products are going up and down? That kind of stuff, which is looking at a lot of data, doing reporting and analytics. And then the third thing is predicting the future. So what is this customer going to get next? He bought a digital camera. Maybe he's going to want something, you know, what's the next thing they're likely to get based on all their history or the business, you know, the manufacturing line, you know, the, you know, can predict failures, predict that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of different machine learning algorithms that we built directly in the database so that the customer can, it makes it very easy. They already have the database. They can come into the database and build that model directly in the database. And then it will give you predictions very fast. And it can also predict in real time as the data is coming in. So one of the things that's key is integrating machine learning with online transaction processing. So when I get an order, I need to know instantly, is this a fraudulent order? Is this someone trying to you know, use a false credit card and steal yeah. something? Or is this a real legitimate order? So that has to happen in way sub-second time because that person is making that order. They want instant response. So machine learning has two different broad aspects. One is kind of predicting things in aggregate, like, hey, what's going to sell more? What's going to fail more? And then there's a real-time aspect of it also, which is this particular unit, this particular order, is it fraudulent? Is it some security threat? Is it, you know, what should I offer this, this person next? So all these different algorithms we've been building into the database so customers can very simply write database queries and say, all right, build a model of what a credit card fraud looks like. And we apply that model in real time in the online transaction processing system directly so that they can get an answer instantaneously on that. That's super fascinating. I love that distinction of the of the two internal versus external. What's interesting is, so do you work on both sides of that? I mean, at, at Oracle, are you working on like customer facing stuff and stuff internally? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Do you find that other like executives or IT leaders you know, from the people that we talked to on the podcast, there's some folks that spend like 50% of their time with customers, like working on those kind of problems. There's other folks that spend like 100% of their time internal. Do you think it gives you that flexibility to work on both actually helps you to kind of understand customers' problems better and understand kind of your own problems better? Because I think that there's some of the CIOs that we've talked to where I think they wish that they spent more of a 50-50 split than kind of just one side or the other. Yeah, I mean, honestly, my biggest challenge is time. There's yeah. not enough time, right? So, and in terms of technology and competitive threats, you have to look all over the place. So you have, you know, academic research, you know, new techniques that are being developed, new technology, for example, like flash technology and yeah. memory tech, all that stuff is coming out. You have to stay on top of it, machine learning, all that kind of stuff. You got to stay, in, of course, in touch with customers. What are their, what are you know, what are the issues they're having? What do they demand? You know, we have very big customers. Yeah. They're not shy about coming to us when they want something or when they have an issue. You also have to watch the competitors. Sometimes competitors come up with good ideas, and 
you know, we're like, hey, that's a good idea. We, we'll, we'll do that also. So you have to cover it. You know, a lot of ideas come from your own employees, from yourself, interacting with people, extrapolating into the future, trying to figure out what really matters. So we have a lot more ideas that we have time to implement. So, you know, part of the big challenge is saying, hey, here's these 50 things we want to do, but we can only do 10 this year. Which ones are we going to bet on? What, what are the ones that are potentially real game changers and what are the things that are sort of incremental improvements that is a very hard judgment call you know like i said it's always obvious in retrospect but at the time it's not that easy to figure out yeah how do you how do you take those requests like are you doing things like you know you we've seen companies doing like these kind of pitch competitions is doing like you know you have citizen developers working on certain sort of things you have you know other folks who have a, a weekly cadence where they spend you know whatever a certain amount each week looking at new ideas like it seems like you're obviously very in tune with like the academic research and looking at things like that how are you kind of like absorbing these new ideas i don't know that there's any real magic to it yeah uh part of it is you have to have a big kind of bullshit filter because there's yeah. a lot of bullshit out there yep and you know part of it i mean my simple rule is you talk for example in the customer site talk to a lot of customers and then when you start hearing something several times, you're like, oh, you know, yeah, I talked to customer X last week and he mentioned something, but then I talked to customer Y and he said something, and customer Z is saying something similar. So that's a big trigger, right? When you're like, oh, this is the fifth time I've heard about this from customers. I better pay attention to this one. Because there is, as I mentioned, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff to do and there's a lot of false, you know, things that really don't matter, false threats, false technologies, false breakthroughs that you got to kind of weed through. So yeah, just got to pay attention. And uh, like I said, I mean, the one trick, which is not much of a trick, because I don't think there are tricks for figuring out what what's really important, what isn't, is, hey, when you start hearing it over and over again, maybe that one matters. Yeah. I mean, do you look at like stuff like, yeah, I don't know, for example, like 500 startups, like demo days or YC demo days, like some of the uh, emerging startups that are building technologies, are you looking into that stuff at all? Uh, we do look at startups in our space. It's probably less important than some of the, like, for example, you know, web, you know, product space. Um, yeah. But with enterprise database, not really. No, there is. I mean, there actually is, you know, interesting thing is probably 10, 20 years ago, it was really down to like a small number of companies in the database world. And actually now there's a lot of startups. So uh, a lot of people are entering into this space and, and a few of them actually have some pretty good ideas. So we watch that also. And it seems like Oracle has had a lot of technical leaders like yourself who can blend the leadership aspect with the technical aspect. How do you build that type of like culture? I mean, a lot of times the value you have like the engineer first culture, I think, but um, specifically building that to endure. A lot of it is, it's just picking the right people. I mean, I, again, I don't know that there's any, I don't have yeah. any trick <laughs> that I can give people, but you hire really smart people you see who really performs and you hold on to them and you you promote them. And it, it really just boils down. I, I think in this case, it really just boils down to the people picking and growing the right people. All right. So we're going to do some lightning round questions, questions you have not seen ahead of time. Dan over here is staring at me. Yeah, he's, we're making him sweat. Fast and easy questions. All right. What app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? Uh, well, I happen to be a podcast guy. Yeah, <laughs> love it. So, uh, you know, I, I listen to podcasts every morning as I'm driving into work. So I, I use Overcast. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. But that works really well for me. What's your favorite podcast? Or you can list off a few. 
you know, I listen to a lot of different podcasts, things like Fresh Air, This American Life. Yep. Uh, I also listen to things like Conversations with Tyler. Mm -hmm. I have, uh, let me just look at my podcast list here. So I have I have a lot of different things that I listen to. They're mostly kind of technical, economic, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. IT visionaries I have on hey. here. Econ Talk, I find to be very oh, interesting. Oh, Econ Talk's great. We have, yeah. We've had Russ on, I think twice, on, yeah. uh, on Education Trends and Mission Daily. I, I like Planet Money, Intelligence Squared, uh, Revisionist History was brilliant. So good. Yes. So those are some of the ones I listen to. I love it. What is your best advice for a first-time CIO, CTO, CISO, first-time C-level executive? I think the hard thing is keeping your eye on the big picture and time management. Those are the, To me, those are the big, difficult things to do. And you just have to carve out time. You have to carve out time to keep your eye on the big picture because uh, as you move up in the organization, there's a zillion things that are constantly trying to interrupt you. And so I would say, watch your time. Make sure you're, you're keeping track of the big picture. I love it. That was the lightning round. That's it. That's all we got today. Thanks so much for, for hanging out. It was great having you on. And, um, and we'll be... Uh, patiently uh, checking out what's going on with Oracle database and enterprise and autonomous. It's really exciting stuff. All right. Yeah, it was, it was fun to be here today. Mission.org is a media company with a daily newsletter, network of podcasts, and brand studio designed to accelerate learning. Head to mission.org to get award-winning podcasts like The Mission Daily, The Story, IT visionaries, education trends, marketing trends, future of cities, and more. Mission Studios has worked with companies like Salesforce, Twilio, and Katera to create custom media channels that drive results. Make sure to subscribe to the Mission's daily newsletter at mission.org. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.